Welcome to The Scientist Speaks, a podcast produced by the Scientists Creative Services team. Our podcast is by scientists and for scientists. Once a month, we bring you the stories behind newsworthy molecular biology research. This episode is brought to you by Sartorius, a partner of life science research and the biopharmaceutical industry. Many diseases, such as cancer, dementia, or inflammatory diseases, are still incurable. Sartorius helps biotech scientists and engineers across the globe to develop and manufacture medications, from the first idea to production, so that more people can access better medicine. Staphylococcus aureus is a versatile pathogen that infects many areas of the body and has a number of strategies for avoiding the immune response. In this episode, Nikki Spige from the Scientists' Creative Services team spoke with Anthony Richardson, an associate professor of microbiology and molecular genetics at the University of Pittsburgh, to learn how the bacterium fine-tunes its metabolism to survive in the host and why staff's metabolism makes it especially dangerous for people with diabetes. Antibiotic resistance in microbes is on the rise, and some scientists fear that a resistant organism could cause the next pandemic. One bacterium that researchers have a close eye on is Staphylococcus aureus, a pathogen that has uniquely evolved to have multiple intertwined strategies for combating the immune response. Combine those with drug resistance, and methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, or MRSA, has the potential to cause recurrent, life-threatening infections. About the turn of the millennia, there was a new strain that emerged, and it started to spread all over North and South America, and it's responsible for community-acquired MRSA. It'll be responsible for some 95% of hospitalizations due to staph infections. It really took over the clinical landscape. And at the high point, it was causing you know millions and millions of infections and about 19 to 20,000 deaths annually. Now that number is down to about maybe 3 million infections, but it is a leading cause of hospital-acquired and community-acquired infections that require hospitalizations. There are two main arms of the Staphylococcus genus, coagulase-positive and coagulase-negative staphylococci. Staph aureus belongs to the positive group, while other common members of the human microbiome, such as Staphylococcus epidermidis, are coagulase-negative. Staph aureus typically colonizes its hosts on the skin, and lives there without causing any problems. But if it finds itself in a more favorable environment, like inside a cut or down a hair follicle, it can cause a number of skin infections. If those infections go unchecked, more severe systemic disease or even death can occur. Staph most commonly causes boils, painful, pus-filled bumps under the skin that come from the infection of hair follicles. On healthy human skin, you can get between 100 to 100,000 genomes of staph aureus per square centimeter. Around a boil, you have billions of staph aureus. It's a huge population expansion, and that's likely how it spreads, if not to another host, but at least to another part of your body. In my opinion, that's where the real evolution of staph is happening, to develop the ability to thrive and persist in that boil. The host immune response will kill all the competing microflora that fall down there with staph, and so it'll be by itself against the host, and it loves that. Moving from the skin surface to inside a hair follicle is like switching from a salad bar to an all-you-can-eat buffet in terms of nutrient availability. On the skin, staph has evolved to live off of a paltry diet that includes peptides, urea, and other components of sweat. Once bacteria fall down the follicle, they have access to glucose. 
an excellent carbon source for generating energy through different metabolic pathways. Compared to other staphylococci, Staph aureus has evolved a large arsenal of enzymes and sugar transporters that allow it to use that glucose to its maximum potential, even in the face of an inhibitory immune response. These enzymes are important for fermentative biology. When staph is faced with the immune system, the host throw all kinds of immune radicals like nitric oxide and superoxide at it. Those wreak havoc on respiratory chains. So what it's done is pick up a lot of genes that allow it to ferment very aggressively so that it can still grow and still generate energy. And these genes, interestingly, are not found in coagulase negative staphylococci. So there's like almost 40 genes in staph aureus, whereas staph epidermis has 15 and the others have like 10 and less than 10. So this regulon is super big in staph aureus and all the genes are involved in fermentative metabolism. Where they came from, we have no idea. But what we can do is show that if you overexpress the repressor of these genes, they'll never come on, even when they see immune radicals, then staph aureus can't grow anaerobically. It can't grow without respiration. Staph's metabolic strategy mimics that of their hosts. When immune cells throw out radicals to kill invading pathogens, they block both bacterial and mitochondrial respiratory chains. To generate energy in the face of this assault, mammalian cells import glucose from their environment and ferment it generating lactate as a byproduct. Staph's special metabolic enzymes and glucose transporters do the same thing. What works for the host works just as well for staph. Additionally, staph's unique metabolism is only one piece of its diabolical survival strategy. It requires a ton of virulence factors, toxins, proteases, lytic peptides, and the other species just don't have those. The interesting thing is that staph aureus lost its CRISPR-Cas system. So it can take up DNA. All the other species of Staphylococcus still have their CRISPR-Cas. There was a great paper where they isolated this distantly related Staph aureus, and it still had its CRISPR-Cas. And in the CRISPR-Cas spacer elements were the virulence factors that Staph aureus has, implying that phage is trying to stuff DNA into these species all the time, but the CRISPR-Cas prevents it from taking hold. Staph aureus, for whatever reason, gave up on the CRISPR-Cas, so it doesn't have a defense against foreign DNA. Staph aureus's unique ability to metabolize glucose under challenging circumstances and produce myriad virulence factors that destroy host cells becomes a perfect storm in people with diabetes. Individuals who have lost control over their blood glucose levels are more susceptible to MRSA infection, including recurrent and chronic infections. Around the same time that community-acquired MRSA started to spike in the population, diabetes was also on the rise. Richardson thinks it's possible that the two are connected, that as the susceptible population increased in number, so too did the incidence of this particular infectious disease. In people with diabetes, due to a lack of insulin production or an inability to respond to insulin, cells do not take up glucose effectively from their surrounding environment, which leaves a lot behind for staph to metabolize. In addition, an abundance of glucose sends staph a signal to turn on virulence factor production. This is done through their quorum sensing system. When glucose is the carbon source, staph's energy is maxed. And so that system is on to the full extent. If glucose is absent, then that system doesn't come on. So even though they may be in quorum, they may be very dense in population, like on the surface of the skin, they won't waste the energy making toxins and proteases and whatnot. Then a diabetic, the excess of glucose makes them even happier. They actually make more toxins and more proteases and more lytic peptides per cell in the context of a diabetic infection. 
These toxins are then poised to battle with immune cells, which are already dysfunctional in a person with diabetes. Richardson's team studied this in a diabetic mouse model. To make mice diabetic, a researcher injects them with an antibiotic that permanently destroys the pancreas's beta cells, which normally produce insulin. This results in hyperglycemia in the blood. After infecting the mice with staph, Richardson's team found that the neutrophils and macrophages that serve as the first line of defense against pathogens don't express one of their major glucose transporters. Because they can't eat any of the available glucose, these phagocytic cells cannot fuel their own metabolic pathways necessary to make radicals like nitric oxide and superoxide. Instead, the immune cells are sitting ducks in the line of Staph aureus's fire. The researchers also treated the diabetic mice with a compound that restores their blood glucose levels to normal. Although the host cells still did not produce radicals for unknown reasons, the staph bacteria were stymied by the lack of excess glucose, as they did not increase virulence factor production. This suggests that by controlling blood glucose levels, people with diabetes can reduce their risk for MRSA infection. Richardson plans to continue investigating the evolution of these unique Staph aureus features to discover how and why it came to be such a successful pathogen. By learning its secrets, scientists and physicians can better prepare themselves to fight this powerful opponent. Staph aureus seems to have evolved to really go after glucose. There's a way to look at genes that are obviously undergoing selection. There's way higher rates of amino acid changing mutations compared to silent mutations than there should be. And some of those genes are glycolytic genes. We're trying to show, is this bug really seriously evolving to specifically go after glucose? Because it really looks that way from the surface. And we want to get down and understand the mechanistics of how it's done that. And then are we seeing this happen in other related species? Are we going to see the emergence of a new Staph aureus that is equally troublesome for physicians and patients? When you look at the phylogenetic tree, you can't say which came first, but it looks as though until they have the full complement of metabolic capabilities, all the glucose transporters, all of the fermentative genes that Staph aureus currently has, until that happened, no species evolved virulence. So it could be that they started to pick up virulence factors and so they necessitated them to get these metabolic adaptations. Or it could be that they picked up the metabolic capabilities and then now when they acquire a virulence factor, they can use it. The connection between the metabolic evolution and the virulence evolution that they're so intertwined, I think, is the most exciting thing. Thank you for listening to The Scientist Speaks. This episode was produced by the Creative Services team for The Scientist and narrated by Nikki Spige. And thank you to Sartorius for sponsoring this episode. Please join us for our next episode as we learn how harmless bacteria develop drug resistance. To keep up to date with this podcast, follow The Scientist on Facebook and Twitter and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.